hardware without <laughs> software is a bookend. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Uh, software without hardware is, is, is what it means. It's just uh, something that you could... Uh, it's, not, it's nothing. It's nothing, software. right. It's just, but the soul can survive without So, well, it, it, it exists, but think about it this way. The body, the body exists also without the soul. It's not very functional. It can't accomplish anything, right? It does exist, right? It, there is, we do inter something into the, into, the, into, the, into, the, into the ground, right? <laughs> so the body does exist. It just doesn't have any function. The soul also doesn't have any function. Soul can accomplish. There's a great. So we'll start with this. It's nice. There's a great discussion in the Talmud. The Talmud talks about this fellow whose name was they call him Antoninus, uh, which is Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, who became the emperor of Rome. Marcus. Yeah. Marcus Aurelius Antoninus in the year 161, and at the end of the second century of the Common Era, a very pivotal time for the Jewish people. Uh, they had just undergone, uh, obviously, the destruction of the temple. Uh, the Romans are in control. The Jews are, are scattered. They, they, the central authority is, is somewhat weakened. Uh, they had this fellow by the name of Hadrian. Hadrian was a really, really bad guy for Jewish perspective. Hadrian uh, was from the year 117 to the year 138. He was the emperor. And he made all the rules against circumcision and Shabbat. And they made it very hard for the Jews to, uh, to, to exist as a nation. You, see, you, teach, study, you teach Torah publicly. You get executed. Like, think about it. That's very constricting. But towards the end of the first of the second century, we meet a fellow by the name of Antoninus, or he's, he's called in Roman Antoninus. He's called the Talmud also, but we know him today as Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, and he was very friendly with the Jews. And in fact, the Talmud recounts conversations that he had with the great Jewish leader of the time, also very famous, someone by the name of Rabbi Judah the Prince, very famous person and very pivotal figure in Jewish history because he was the one who codified the Mishnah. He's the one who organized the Mishnah. So uh, the Talmud has these very interesting dialogues that they had, these philosophical arguments that they had. So the first time it records, it says like this. Antonina says to Rebbe, to Rebbe Judah the Prince, the rabbi, the body and the soul could each self-exonerate themselves. Right? Man dies. Man committed who knows how many heinous sins over their life. Now the body and the soul are separated. And each element, each half of those uh, of that of that uh, uh, of that duo, each half could say, "I'm not responsible for the sins." Blame the other. Blame the other. Exactly. So it says <laughs> the body says to God, "Hey, I didn't sin. Look at me. Since the soul left me, I'm lying like a rock on the ground, totally useless." The soul sinned. The go to the soul, and the soul says to to the Almighty. The soul says, "Hey, lonely. I didn't sin. Without the body, look at me. I'm like a I'm like a bird flying in the air." I'm just totally useless. I can't do it. I can't do any sense of the body sin. So that's the question you asked Rebbe. How do we ever have reward and punishment uh, for our for our deeds uh, after we die? Because the body and soul are separated, and each one of them is not responsible for the misdeeds, but similarly not responsible for the positive deeds that they did in their lifetimes. That's the question he that he asked him, and now it's, you, but they're not responsible for the positive as well, as well. Because so, how do you get judged if you know? That's that's exactly his question. Now, the well, the the gravity of this problem is that the second you take away reward and punishment from the whole picture, then our actions don't really matter. If there's no consequence to what you do, it's inconsequential. Hence the name, right? Hence the word. By definition. By definition, exactly. Uh, and if it's inconsequential, then the entire the, there's no what's the purpose in anything? Like there's no it doesn't matter if I live or die or if I do good or if I do bad. 
uh, as manifest by having consequences, well, then it's inconsequential. So life has no meaning. So it's a very deep problem that he asked, he asked the rabbi. So the rabbi tells him a wonderful example. He says, uh, there's a mashal, a parable, an analogy. Uh, you have a king, and the king has this wonderful, beautiful orchard, belated with wonderful fruits, and he hires two guards to watch the, the orchard, watch the fruits. The problem is that one of the guards is blind, and one of them is lame. One, one can't walk, and one can't see. And they're sitting there trying to watch and wait off, you know, uh, uh, ward off any uh, any intruders. And then the the lame guard says to the to the to the blind one says, "Hey, you know what I see? I see really luscious, delicious, tempting, enticing fruits. Why don't you uh, Why don't you give me a piggyback and I'll direct you and you'll carry me, and we'll go. We'll eat the fruits. So what do they do? So the guy hops on like on his back." And uh, and he navigates, the navigates, they get to eat up all the fruits. So a year later, a year passes, and the king comes back and says, hey, where are my fruits? So the lame watchman says, wait a minute, look at me. I'm lame. I'm sitting on the floor. I can't, I, it must have been the blind guy. The blind guy says, me? I couldn't have done it. There was a lame guy. I can't see. How would I go? I bump into the first tree. So what did the king do? The king took the lame, uh, took the lame guard, put him on top in the piggyback position, and judged them as one. Says Rabbi, says the Rabbi to Antoninus, the Almighty is going to take the body and the soul, reunite them, and judge them as one. So yes, individually, they each can't do anything, they each can't accomplish anything, they each can't be judged, or, or, um, uh, uh, or even rewarded for, for their deeds. So what, right? what about the, the, that concept of some purification after you die, where you go through... Kind of purification that's right. Process. That's that's not reward and punishment. That's a total. That that that's something else. And that's that's. Oh, well, for sure not. Because the 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 Catholics talk purgatory. about it, eternal, yeah, purgatory. Um, it, it's it's a classic example of a, of a Jewish idea that the the Catholics adopted or pilfered, perhaps is a better word, and distorted. Uh, the Talmud, I'm using the Talmudic sources because the Talmudic sources uh, are predate any, and you know the, the, these are the classic sources on this on these matters, uh, and it talks about something called Gehenna, and it says that it has a maximum amount of uh, amount of time, twelve months. Uh, twelve months. That's what it says. That's right. And this, but that's but that's different than the judgment. That's right. That's 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 irrespective of judgment. That's uh, I, I think of that as uh, like a power washing or something like that. It's Does basically that make judgment easier. Uh, it's it has nothing to do with the judgment. Um, uh, now, if you want to hear more about the issue, the topic, I would tell you to go to my website. I would give a class what happens after you die, because that's a very good thing. You know, everyone has blemishes in their soul. No, uh, not everyone, with the exception of of if individuals like Moses, we're going to meet in this week's parsha, and the great individuals. Everyone has some sort of flaw. Um, Me too, right? Moses, even Moses, yeah, but I'm saying, but comparatively, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, And therefore, uh, the soul, when we're dealing in this eternal world, we want perfection. We want it to be scintillating. We want it to be perfect, 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 perfect. Uh, So, as its method of preparation, it's going to be a power. We call it a power washer, but it's not. It's not some method of punishment. Um, That happens after the body is reunited with its with its soul. That's what it says. That's the. uh, the the Talmudic analysis on this particular issue, body and soul uh, detached from each other, 
uh, and uh, and how do you actually uh, meet out uh, justice? So that has to happen afterwards. Either way, um, so the Torah. So now uh, this week's parsha is is the first uh, is parsha Shmos. Shmos. The word Shmos means Shemot means names, names. names. And uh, this is also a new book, the book uh, the book of Exodus. We finished one of the five books. Right. We talked about Jewish the Torah. We have five books. And the Bible, we have twenty-four books, but the, the Torah is this is this the core, is the uh, fundamental books of of not only our religion, but probably um, uh, most of the world's uh, perspective on life, the worldview, the Weltanschauung of the world is, is formulated by by these five books. And the word Torah, I don't know what the word Torah means. What's the word Torah mean? Instructions. Instructions. And that's the key word because it's a book of instructions. And if you look at the commentaries, the very first commentary that Rashi, Rashi, the paramount commentator, the first, very first Rashi that he, the very first uh, comment he gives on the entire Torah, he asks a fundamental question. If Torah is about instruction, as evident by its own name, everything has to be instructive. Right? It's, it's a book of instructions. A book of instructions contains instructions. It doesn't contain fairy tales or stories or irrelevant uh, uh, a material that's not germane to its topic, which is instructions. And therefore, he says, this book contains multitudes of instructions. In fact, we have 613 mitzvahs, and a mitzvah is an instruction from, uh, from, from, from the author in the book. Yet the very first one, or we, if you look at the book of Genesis, you have a very hard time finding instructions. Right? You find an instruction of be fruitful and multiply. You find an additional instruction on chapter, I think, 17 uh, to have uh, circumcisions. Ben is not here to challenge you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) He's in Israel right now. Yeah, I know. Uh, And lastly, in the book of Genesis, you have the instruction not to eat a certain part of the animal. Um, The Gid Hanasha, I think it's the sciatic nerve. The sciatica. Uh, The sciatica. Um, Shabbos, right? Well, no, you don't find the you don't find Shabbos in Genesis. So you have an entire book. There's fifty chapters in Genesis. There's a, so much. I believe there's more content in Genesis than any any, any one of the other. Uh, What's that vein? Well, like, where is it? It's part of the animal. It's uh, certain it's like fats. The By the hip. Yeah, that's why to find uh, a filet mignon that's kosher is very very hard. So it's the best kind of meat, but it's uh, there has there's a process called nikur, which is removing that particular. Um, that particular part, the, the prohibited part of the animal that has to be removed in order to get the fillets. So and most of the times, when they co- when they have a kosher animal, they just give it to the non-Jews. Just you know, but they have some restaurants that have yeah, some kosher restaurants. I yeah, went there. And you have to pay fifty dollars for that. Uh, yeah, probably at least. <laughs> so uh, so that's that. So you have a book of instructions. There's fifty chapters. There's so much information. We meet such tremendous characters, and it's all instructive, and. Our job when we're studying the Torah primarily is going to be learning the instructions. So when we read about Abraham and the Torah carefully curated its uh, uh, narrative that it gave us about him because those narratives, even though they're stories and don't contain uh, uh, um, explicit instructions, but within that there's ethical instructions, there's philosophical instructions, there's lessons that we can learn while studying these stories. And that's what Rashi tells us. He says, hey, there's, there's lessons to be learned and that's why it was written for us and that's why it's still part of the instruction, instructions of the Torah. The book of Genesis, 
we talk about the formation, basically, of the family that's going to uh, be the Jewish people. Right? Genesis starts off with a very, very short description of, uh, of, of creation. Now, it gives us 31 verses. In, in, in most um, universities uh, that have libraries in America, you'll find, you know, Tens of thousands of books that books that deal with this topic of you know of 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 how we came to being and the origin of species and the origin of of our universe. The Torah dedicates thirty one pages to it, uh, thirty one verses. I'm sorry, not even thirty one pages. Very very little, very minimal. Clearly, as someone here mentioned, the Zohar, um, there is a lot more beyond the surface. You know. It gives us a very surface understanding of, of 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 what's actually happening by any by any, by any stretch of of, of uh, however you want to study it. But there's more to than just a simplistic understanding. We meet Adam. Adam is this uh, uh, paramount figure who is tasked with a seemingly very simple mitzvah. He fails miserably, and in Judaism we say that Adam is an amalgamation of all of humanity, and the potential of all humanity, hence a very concentrated uh, uh, decision or mitzvah that he had. When he failed, there was a shift in the trajectory of, of what the Almighty intended for the world. Right? It was going to be about one man, or really one, one, what we would call today a collective man. Humanity, tasked with a decision, humanity failed, as humanity is wont to do. <laughs> he failed. From then on, the, the the world was not going to look like all of humanity going to try to uh, accomplish perfection. Rather, it was going to be a minor part of humanity that's going to influence everyone. So a common question that we have about our religion is that we don't have the same universal vision that, let's say, the Muslims have. The Muslims say, hey, we, Islam is the, na- is the last religion. It's a religion for everyone. Everyone has to be Islam. If you're not part of the nation of Islam... You're part of the nation of sword. That's it's very Quran or the, or the sword, right? It's it's right. Dal al Kharab and Dal al Islam. That's the how you say it in Arabic, right? The nation of Islam, nation of sword. Clearly, what they're trying to uh, project here is this is for everyone. Everyone ought to be um, uh, to be and Christians similarly same. Uh, some you know some of them share the same uh, the same characteristic. Judaism, we say no. We're going to be a small nation but we're going to influence the whole world. The demands and responsibilities that the Torah places on us greatly exceed the demands of all of humanity. If you look at the Torah, we have 613 mitzvahs that are for us Jews and seven for the Gentiles, the seven Noahide mitzvahs. The seven laws of society. Us, we're held to a higher standard. And also... We don't proselytize. The Torah is very much against proselytization, which is forced, means forced conversions. Jews don't try to make everyone else Jewish. This model of having a uh, one group be influential, that means they themselves attain a certain level of perfection, but that ripple effect affecting the entire world, that changed after Adam. And the Almighty says, I'm going to leave the opportunity open for anyone, any individual, any nation to accept that mental responsibility, to accept uh, the, uh, uh, the responsibility of being the people or being the individual, the family, the people that's going to be God's ambassadors in the world, teach the world about morality, get the Torah, and eventually change the world 
to belief in God. That was an opportunity open for everyone. We meet Abraham. When we talk about Abraham and the verse saying that God chose Abraham, in reality was the opposite. Abraham was the one who says, I'm willing to accept that responsibility. He chose God. So, and the rest of Genesis, so we have that, basically we meet, we meet uh, Abraham, I think, what, in Genesis 12 or 15, something like that. And the rest of Genesis is um, the cultivation of Abraham and Abraham's family and ultimately f- uh, finishing with this family in Egypt, small, about 70 people, and we close the book. That's what we got up to. Interestingly, when God tells Abraham, you're the man, you're the one who's going to, whose family is ultimately going to be this nation that's going to influence the whole world, there's one prerequisite. You should know that your kids are going to be slaves in Egypt. Your kids are going to be slaves in Egypt. As a prerequisite for us to accept this responsibility of being God's people, of being this nation that's going to turn the world over as we did, Abraham came to a world that no one believed in this monotheistic model. No one. Today, the vast majority of people do believe in that, or some semblance of that. We did change the world. Abraham was the one who introduced the idea of absolute morality. He came into a very barbaric, chaotic world, and today, if you look at just society, uh, how it has developed on the Abrahamic principles of, uh, of, 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 the, of the opportunity of the individual, like we say, uh, of, of belief in, in, in one power, of... Uh, a certain standard of morality that's pretty much uh, ubiquitous, universal. These are Abraham's innovations. We do see already now how Abraham and the Jewish people changed the world. We, we see that now. But all of this, the first thing God tells him, you're, you're going to be the one. I chose you because you chose me. Your family, your kids are going to be that people. You're going to have to be in Egypt. You close the book, you finish Genesis, you open up Exodus, and first thing we see, chapter 1, we're in Egypt, we're enslaved, we're marginalized, we're oppressed, we're subjugated, we're suppressed. And the theme of the entire parsha, indeed the theme perhaps of many, many uh, decades and centuries of Jewish history, has been that it is not very pleasant, it's not very, a lot of fun, it's not very easy to be Jewish. You're going to be oppressed, you're going to have a difficult time, you're going to face uh, endless persecution, you're going to be marginalized physically, economically, socially, um, and the uh, storybooks of history are littered with examples of, of, of the mistreatment of Jews. And I, I think that, you know, as the theme of the Parsha, one of the two themes, one of the two central themes of our Parsha uh, is obviously the idea of exile, the idea of, uh, of us being uh, being uh, suppressed and having um, the exile of Egypt, obviously, but Egypt being uh, a microcosm of a bigger, you know, uh, a bigger influence or theme that we've had throughout our 35 years, of, 100 years of history, where you go from the Egyptians and then you go to the Babylonians and what they tried, or even the Assyrians, even earlier, what the Assyrians tried to do to the Jews and how they slaughtered the entire uh, kingdom of Israel and the ten tribes are lost uh, from then. Uh, the, the, uh, the Babylonians, the Persians tried to, to destroy us, the Greeks and the Romans we know, uh, the, the Christians, we have, Lord knows what happened to us over the past thousand years with the Christians. And as recently as this past century, we know that we have constantly been the target uh, of 
uh, of of derision, of course, but of annihilation attempts, and it's it it's you know there hasn't been a break, and that's uh, something we have to really examine. That's the theme of the parsha. It's a theme of our religion. Think about that. Abraham is being told, "You are going to be God's people, but you're going to be in Egypt, and you're going to suffer greatly, your kids." Why is God not giving us kind of a little bit of an easier way to go? But when he, when he, I mean, when, when Abraham talked to God first, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He didn't mention it, right? It was after some time that he... No, no he was, mentioned it. Uh, no, no, that's no, where no, you no. get into the predestination question. So right. I think the... Well, that's... Is so, you know, is God saying the destiny? The first time... Yeah, but... Let's go, let's find it here. We're talking about chapter... Well, the, the Brisbane of Sarm. Here we go. Chapter uh, 15. Verse uh, verse 13. Oh, the, the, uh, verse 13 yeah, of, of chapter 15. I <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So um, in chapter twelve, he's promised to be in a great nation. Yeah. He doesn't get he doesn't get um, a promise of Israel just yet. In chapter fifteen, uh, verse thirteen, um, and the Almighty said to Abraham, "You should know with certainty that your offspring shall be aliens in a land not their own. They will serve them. They oppress them for four hundred years. But also the nation that they will serve, I shall judge. And afterwards, they will leave with great wealth." And then chapter 17, we have another another promise, which is 17. Um, no, but it says here, four. Four. If you look 12. Yeah, so, so you said there's 12, there's 15, and 17. But the first thing is. You, you'll be blessed. Uh, you'll be blessed, you'll be fine, and then. Remember, he doesn't, get, left. He doesn't get Israel. Right. That, that comes in chapter 17. Chapter 17, verse 4, we have like this. Uh, this is my covenant with you. You shall be a father of a multitude of nations. This is the Almighty speaking to Abraham. Your name shall no longer be called Abraham, but rather Abraham. Yeah. I will make you most exceedingly fruitful, make nations of you, and kings shall descend from you. I will write up my covenant with you, and uh, between me and you, and between, and between you, your offspring and you, throughout the generations, an everlasting covenant to be your God, to you and your offspring after you. I will give you, I will give you the land of your sojourns, the land of Canaan, mm-hmm. an everlasting possession, and I shall be a God to them. So there you go. We see, but all this is, and, and before that, he before that promise, he was he, he was um, also promised that you should know for sure, you should know with certainty that you're going to have. Well, um, sure. I'm sure. You're going to have this exile. I mean. So that's the question. Yeah. I, th- I think I think it's um it's a specific theme that we talk about in 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 Egypt. You know, they're going to be suffering in Egypt for many 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 years. Um, it's going to be so bad that at the end of the Parsha, we're going to meet Moses, which is the, the next theme of the Parsha is going to be Moses, the rise, the emergence of Moses, uh, and how the Torah describes him, what, what stories do we have of him, kind of how does, how does the Torah paint the emergence of this great leader, of the, uh, you know, of the quintessential leader um, of the Jewish people, and, and basically the protagonist of the book as well. Because the last thing that happens in the entire Torah is the death of Moses. Clearly, there's some uh, significance to the fact that Moses, as um, uh, as the author, but also as the character uh, that's that's uh, that's that we talk about the most, uh, 
Well, maybe with the exception of God, I don't get to call him a character. <laughs> um, uh, and incidentally, Moses is also the uh, is the villain as well because Moses is is also uh, castigated more than anyone else. And he comes up, he shows up in our parsha as well. So that's the next thing we're going to try to focus on is 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 why uh, is how exactly the Torah is painting uh, the rise of this great leader and kind of the. So where is Moses at this point? Well, Moses hasn't been born yet. Right, right now uh, we're, we are starting the chapter one of 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 of, Gen- of, of Exodus uh, talks about this um, the uh, the oppression that happened oh, that began. Okay. Okay. So, Did you he's born. Yes. Chapter two. Chapter two. He's born. Chapter two. He's born, and then you know later on in the parsha, uh, Moses. We have the burning bush story. We know the burning bush. Uh, Moses is tasked by God, and he, very unwillingly, but George W. George W. Bush. Oh, the bush. Oh, okay. So in this, um, when he says what's going to happen, yeah, uh, he has to be in. Uh, you shall be strangers and they are not theirs and you'll be oppressed. Yeah. So does that kind of determine, he's already determining our future? Or what? Yeah, so that's your question. Um, what Ben's asking is um, is is more, of a, is more of a philosophical like quandary yeah, I mean, or problem. You know, uh, how God, uh, God's predeterminism of, of saying this will for sure happen. So uh, the answer, I, I think what you're asking is that it couldn't have been any other way. Is that basically your question? Well, he's saying what's going to happen, right? He's saying, exactly. And, and you know what? I'm saying that, that in itself is not such a big problem. The Torah is full of predictions. The Torah has many, many predictions. Just open up the book of, of Deuteronomy and open up to any random page. You'll likely to find some sort of prediction of the future. And many of them that are unprecedented and many of them that happen already uh, with uncanny accuracy. Um, like... Uh, a uh, great example is that the Torah promises that the Jewish people will be exiled multiple times from the land of Israel. And in all of history, there's only been one nation that was exiled more than once. Uh, that's been us. Because uh, in, Jewish his- in, in world history, when, the country, when a country or a nation or a civilization gets exiled, they disappear. They never make it back. Uh, we were exiled multiple times, and we made it back multiple times already. We were exiled uh, by, the, the, by the Babylonians, um, we were exiled by the Romans, mm-hmm. uh, and and we we came back under the leadership of Ezra. We came uh, we came back just in this most recent century uh, uh, to the, to Israel. You know, two hundred years ago there was there was no Jewish civilization, almost negligible Jewish civilization in Israel, and today there's six million Jews living there. Remarkable, like in in, in history has never happened. Couple that with the fact that the Torah promises that we'll always be small in number, we'll never be very big, so we'll never be able to overwhelm uh, our oppressors or our neighbors. Uh, additionally, the Torah promises that we'll always be uh, hated and mistreated. Uh, and if you think about all these factors, a nation not bound by common language, culture, uh, um, uh, really anything besides for the Torah, spread out throughout the world, small in number and oppressed, yet they survive and come back. Like That's a prediction the Torah says, a multi-pronged prediction that we look today in hindsight has happened uh, incredible, uh, incredible accuracy. Why, why do you say that we will be hated? Where, where do you? It says it many times in Deuteronomy that a, that the gentle will have those. They'll they'll, they'll 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 fight us and they'll you know many many times. There's an innumerable amount of times in in Deuteronomy. Uh, but you look at it. You know, I, I think even going back to what we mentioned in Genesis, like that's a prerequisite. You know, and the question is why? Why does our nation 
have to always be wandering? Why can't we be settled like the Chinese? You know, the Chinese, if you go back 2,000 years, 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, there were, about, there were about as many Chinese as there were Jews. You know, the Jews were a huge, huge factor uh, in, in the early Roman uh, Empire. We were huge. We were 10% of Rome. Right? Millions upon millions upon millions of people. We were dynamic. And we had about a comparable amount of people as the Chinese did. And look at us now. We haven't really moved up. Like, we went maybe from 10 million to 15 million over 2,000 years. Why? Because of endless oppressions, pogroms, inquisitions, and Holocaust. That's what happened. That's the reason why. Constantly oppressed, never settled. When you're not settled, you have a hard time flourishing. Right? We were bounced out of uh, France, Portugal, Spain, obviously Germany, uh, Russia, we had, uh, so we were severely uh, marginalized. Every country, you know, in England, the Jews weren't allowed to live in England for 500 years. You know? uh, Shakespeare, in all likelihood, never met a Jew, because Jews were not allowed to live from the 13th to the 18th century. We were only living in England. But he wrote a very nice uh, he, Exactly, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, clearly from lore, from legend. Friend. Yeah. Uh, poetic poetic uh, license. <laughs> So, this is a major theme of our Parsha, and it's a major question we have to ask, because um, I, I think they even made a, there was a poll recently about like what it means to be Jewish, which is a greater poll, like not just amongst, you know, uh, amongst, yes, like, you know, high schoolers. What does it mean to be Jewish? What does it mean to be Jewish? To Jews? Yeah, or what's important, as you don't remember the exact wording of the survey. Wait, to Jews? Jews, 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 Jews. And more than anything else, the people identified with the Holocaust uh, or, and the state of Israel. I think that was, those were one, two, as important things to believe in or to, to, to take pride in. I don't remember the exact words. That is how we're defined as a nation. You know? And if you look at any century, pick a century, right? there has been many, many cases of Jew, Jewish mistreatment. Now you'll say, oh, the Jews are mistreated because they're so successful. Right? Or... You know, well, that's not true. Because any try, kind of rationalization that you give to try to explain why the Jews are mistreated, there is another example of a case where that uh, cause is not in effect and the result is the same. The um, phenomenon of Jew hatred, of Jew mistreatment, is ubiquitous. It's across every, in every continent and it's been around for thousands upon thousands of years. Uh, it's uh, the 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 magnitude or the uh, you know the the um, degree the degree the degree thank you um, is also unprecedented and the reasoning is 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 seemingly seemingly lack lacking you know uh, we either on one hand we're too poor like we were in the 19th century uh, or maybe we're too wealthy now the elders of Zion um, you look at you look at what happened in, in Nazi Germany the Jews were but 1% of the population. 1%. Out of every 100 Germans, there was one Jew. How could someone convince a sophisticated, intelligent nation that the Jews are the result of all the problems, are the cause of all the problems? It's, it's, it's mind-boggling, especially when you count in the fact, the fact that the Jews in Germany were the most... Integrated and assimilated in the in you know in the, in the German world, so it's not logical. It's irrational. Was this a prediction? Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Oh yeah! 
Like, is he purposely stirring things up and getting people to, to hate his own people? Or, or is it something else that it's, you know, he's not I, actually... I, I, think it's, I think it's both. It clearly is a prediction because it's outlined as such. Uh, but I think it's both. And I, I think that that's a legitimate question. Wait a minute. Being hated is obviously something that, obviously something that we don't want to be, obviously. Uh, being uh, unsettled and being constantly moving from place to place is something which is unfavorable. But there's for places sure. where God says, I'm going to do this because I want to test you. But Okay, so you'll like say like nice that. Test. Well, there are people saying that the, these oppressions and so on, the result of that is that you get again this Jewish unity. So it has a purpose, right? I mean, it's very hard to think of the you think Holocaust of stuff. Better ways, better ways of doing that. <laughs> well, but you know, when you when you try to rationalize, right, this hatred and so on, there are people arguing that that's a that's a way for Jews to unite. When yeah. there is no force, external force, they tend to assimilate. And when you have this force, then they again they get together. So people, yeah, I just also, think there's ways of, did, ways of setting up challenges to <laughs> unify people that aren't so evil. He said, this is the main law, and then go learn the rest of this. Mm-hmm. He said... That that you dislike, don't do to someone else. No, 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 no. That's what he said. Well, I mean, he said that too. <laughs> but uh, he said... Um, all the rest Aramaic. of his commentary. <laughs> yeah. Yes, he said in Aramaic. What was the first thing he said all the rest of his commentary before he said that? I, I said, <laughs> That's what he said. That that you dislike, don't do to others, yeah, which is a formalization of, of you should love your fellow as yourself. So by saying that, maybe it happened because you didn't appreciate or even care for your neighbor. And in order for you to do that, something bad has to happen to him for you for it to get your attention. What well, happens that with the tens of thousands of students of Rabbi Akiva? Right? That's uh, 24,000. Yeah. Yeah, they, they died in a plague. It's terrible. Because it's they crazy. didn't, they they didn't, didn't have unity. unity. They had this unity. So I, I think this is a big topic to actually figure out why the Jews are mistreated. And, but first thing we could, we could um, first thing we, could, we for sure could agree upon that it, it, it is clearly a present theme and none of the, um, none of the reasons that are given uh, really um, kind of sufficiently uh, address the issue satisfactorily. You know, none of the reasons that or excuses that are given um, could explain the phenomenon. So you think this will continue? Oh yeah, in, until Mashiach. Mashiach. Well, uh, the way Maimonides describes Mashiach is that it's 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 a realization. It's a realization um, where the Jewish people and their their mission. Um, and their superior not superiority, but uh, their um, their role as being God's representatives will be accepted by everyone. So yes, that would that will end. But one of the classic given reasons given is um, in this is in Jewish in Jewish literature is what Diego says that in order for us to accomplish the vital missions that we need to accomplish, we have to maintain our distinctness. The Torah, this is in Genesis. God gives us a description of what the Jewish nation ought to look like. You shall be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What is a priest? A priest is someone who's different. He's clergy. He dresses different. He acts different. He's different. 
they are on a higher spiritual level than everyone else, right? What a priest means, leadership, you know, not the priests that we see in the news, you know. <laughs> exactly. Not those. When I say, yeah, I'm talking about those kind of priests. Uh, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The word holiness, the word kadosh in Hebrew, means distinct, right? Separate, right? That's what we have to be. If you look at the words of Bilam, this is in the Book of Numbers, the way he describes the Jewish nation at its best, Hain Am Levadad Yishtron. This is a nation that, that, that is distinct, that is alone. In order for us to accomplish, we have to be different. If we're like everyone else, right? if we're ordinary, then we're not going to be fulfilling our mission. Remember, I, I might have mentioned this last time, in the year 2000, they made a, a census. I mentioned this. I might have. I'll still say it again. They made a census in, 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 in China to count how many Chinese there were. And the number they came up with had a margin of error of 48 million. So whatever number it was, it was plus or minus 48 million. Think about it. Us Jews, what are we, 12 million, 14 million? We fit in like eight times into the margin of error of China. Like, how are we going to change the world, right? We're so insignificant. We're 0.02% of, of humanity, right? Yet we're on the billboards everywhere. Yet Israel is a big deal, you know? Why? Because that's the way the Almighty wants it. If we're in the spotlight, if we're distinct, we can accomplish what we need to accomplish. Now, so we have to thank the UN then. But that's a, that's a good question. <laughs> Being distinct, you could be distinct in one of two ways. Either because you're a model of society. Who makes the front page, pages of any newspaper? Criminals, people that are really bad, or people that are really good? The people in the middle don't make it. Yeah. That's who makes it. We're going to be the front pages. Our choice is going to be, are we going to be the light into the nations? Everyone's going to come and look to us for inspiration, for leadership, for moral guidance. Or if we neglect our mission, we're also going to be on the front pages of every newspaper, but that's because we're going to be the object of everyone else's division. That's what it is. The end is the same. Jews teaching the world about God. When were However, we, when were we in the front page of newspapers saying that we are... The times, of, uh, times of David, times of Solomon. We look at that's the Jews at their, at their heyday. So it's, been, it's been a while. It's been a while. No, but no. Yes, at collective information. I, I, I see a paper saying perhaps what the Jews did. Yeah, yeah. you know the uh, the during the times of David and Solomon, they they didn't accept converts because the Jewish people were just everyone just looked up to them. They had they had it all, oh, yeah. and then they were worried of insincere converts because. There's a question on how how could King Solomon marry? The that's also yes, yes, there, but a great. Jews is news. You know this this uh, story that there are two Jews that they meet in the subway and one is reading this uh, Nazi oh, yeah. magazine, <laughs> this anti-Semitic kind of thing. And the other one is like, "What are you doing? You're reading that thing? Yes, because if I read, I mean, if I read this, we have all the power, we have all the money. If I read our thing, we have a problem with the shoe. We need money for this." We need <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <exactly. laughs> uh, so. Um, 
Yeah. So that's so. So this is, and I think this is, this brings up a point that you that you were mentioning. Um, ben has a problem with the end being pre- predetermined. The truth is, problem. philosophically, the destination has been predetermined. The Torah says this is what's going to happen. The Jews will be the people that teach the world about God. However, the uh, uh, the uh, the path that we're going to use to get there could be one of two ways. We can choose to be distinct, being the model of a model of, of what it, of what a perfect nation looks like, a life of the nations. Everyone will look up to us. We'll be distinct. We'll teach the world about God. Or we could attempt to assimilate. We could attempt to be like everyone else. We could try to lose on our own, lose our own distinct character, and then the Gentiles will force us to be different, but not as a model, rather as, you know... Disgrace. It, it disgrace, exactly. You know? And uh, you look at what happened in, in, uh, in Germany, as, it's a great example. I, 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 don't want to, I, I personally don't want to talk about the Holocaust. It's a little bit of a sensitive, sensitive topic for me. You know, my family suffered greatly, greatly, uh, tremendously, you know, you know, all for my grandparents, and all for my wife's grandparents, and their family. It's terrible. But if you're just able to zoom out philosophically for a second, you see that in Germany the Jews tried to become like the Gentiles more than any society, more than any other society in the history of, of, of in Jewish history. About and specifically, the US. About oh, the Jews the, oh no, 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 the Jews no, in Germany, Germany the Jews in Germany, come on, Jews, Jews in, in America. Oh, Jews, in, no, first of all, so Jews in America is different. First of all, Jews in America are more ignorant; they're not uh, 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 the rebelling. German, the German Jews. No, they were very assimilated. They, they were very, they were, they were very assimilated. But I think also at the inception of German assimilation, it was a conscious assimilation. Right, they didn't want to know. They, I mean, they no, or yes, exactly. Suppose the Jews in America are just they're born and they're ignorant. They never have exposure. That's number one. But I also think even so pound for pound. What do you mean? This is a very enlightened. Okay. Yeah, of course. But I'm saying. But your your average Jew in a public school, who just knows that his parents are Jews, and that's. That's right. So, so, so that's not as bad as someone who grew up with a very strong Jewish and background yeah. and goes on uh, a crusade to try to destroy that. Yeah, that's what it was like in, in the early uh, German assimilation. But I think if even today in America, today, Judaism is, is, is on, on, on one hand, there are, there's pockets of vibrancy you know, in, in Jewish communities. It, the trend is moving to the opposite. Compared to in Germany, the trend is moving to opposite. I'm saying, I, I think at, at at the edges, at at, at the edges. Well, there's so much effort to deal with, with this. Why? All the, all the the, I mean, are... the dynamics of, of uh, Jewish here in the community in the states is very, I mean, very hard to crack. There's a special. You see all this research about you know how it's moving and so on. Different. I mean, the Orthodox, the conservative, the Reform, they have very different dynamics, and you know, it, it's not a simple characterization that you say okay this is where it's moving no I, I think there's obviously there's a, there, there's, there's a trend of towards apathy and ignorance but I don't think uh, I think that the trend towards um, more of a curiosity and interest in uh, Jewish learning is increasing more than it was in the 50s that's my point in the 50s and 60s when there wasn't that this push and there wasn't this uh, uh, you know growth at the edges. That's my point. Hmm. Okay. So, so that's the idea. I think when we, we look at uh, we look at the um, the Egyptian exile, we look at the difficulties that the Jews have had throughout uh, throughout our history. 
that's all by design, so to speak. Now, like you said, by design, that's not the best way to go about. It's by design because we have chosen, unfortunately, a path where we uh, want as much as possible to neglect our responsibility of being this model nation, and it has to be heaped upon us. And in history, when the Jewish people have been fulfilling uh, their destiny, uh, the collective destiny and their mission of being aligned to the nation, we haven't had any of those problems, you know. Uh, but specifically, we look at the Egyptian exile, and what do we find? We find, we find uh, a, uh, if you look at verse, I'm looking in, in Genesis, I apologize, I'm like, Whoa, what's going on right here? You look at, right at the beginning, these are the names, uh, look at verse 10. Come, let us outsmart it, lest it becomes uh, numerous, may, uh, and it may be, etc. The plan for the subjugation, the oppression, the enslavement of, of Jews began very, uh, it, it, was, it, it was very clever. There was a lot of cunning involved. If you look at the Midrash, the Midrash tells us that originally, it wasn't just that Pharaoh forced the Jews to, you know, to build cities and to, you know, to lay bricks and stuff. Originally, everyone did. All the Gentiles, Pharaoh himself, everyone went down. Once the Jews, you know, got all, you know, the, 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 the patriotic fervor, like, you know, we want to be like everyone else, then they said, okay, you, you, guys, you guys will continue doing it, you know. We'll, we'll pay you a little bit, but you continue doing it. And eventually they're doing it, and they stopped getting the pay, and they were, that's how they were gradually enslaved. And... I think that the parallel for us today is if you know if you look at the the models of where the Jewish people have had these same kind of interactions with the non-Jews, there's always a gradual buildup. You know, we talk about the Egyptian exile, so we think of it as okay, the Jews were enslaved, uh, and then you know it was, we we think of it primarily as a physical manifestation. Rashi tells us very interestingly that. There were really two exiles. There was the physical subjugation. You were enslaved, you got to work. And then there's the mental or the spiritual, the psychological uh, manifestation. And this had to happen very smartly. If you're going to take a nation, these are the descendants of Jacob. These are very clever people. These are very determined people. This is a a, a group of people that has a, a lot to be proud of, a lot to be admired. If you're going to force them to become enslaved, not only physically but also throughout, you know, to be subjugated to the mentality of of the of the Egyptians, you'd have to do it very smart, very gradually. We look at today, you know, today in America, we're we're very happy to be Jews in America. We have the opportunity to freely practice our religion. It's a very good place to uh, to be uh, alive in history, you know, for economic reasons. Is relative peace and you know stability. It's a very very good place for Jews to be living, especially when you just compare it to our most recent uh, uh, stops, in, you know, in the in you know the trails of, of of Jewish history. But I think that today, collectively, while we're not being enslaved physically, thankfully, there is an element of us becoming Americanized, of us having certain attitudes uh, in our lives about just 
things around us. You know, it's just a certain mentality. Like, you talk to a kid today. I talk to my kids. I'm my own kids. I'm not, I'm not even pointing fingers at anyone. My own kids. You know, the American attitude of you have nothing to do, right? It's what? a free world. You can't tell me what to do. It's a free world, right? The Torah is about guiding us, about, about giving us boundaries, about giving us rules, right? Why? Because the Torah wants to make us perfect people. That's the Jewish attitude. It's not a free-for-all. No. You look at the Torah, there's rules everywhere, right? But in America... Yeah, these Americans. Uh, Argentinians are different. No, but in, in, in America today, we suffer from... Uh, from the uh, the American mentality, and that's what our and our, our kids do this, this as well. Where uh, we have a resistance to the authority, right? you can't tell me what to do, and don't limit me. I want to have all the options on the table. That perspective is antithetical to Judaism. Why? Not because Judaism wants to micromanage our lives. Judaism wants to make us as uh, uh, to, 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 to have vibrant lives, to have the most productive lives. However, if you don't have any, uh, any, uh, any inhibitions or any, any, you're not grounded, you're not going to be able to succeed everything in life. That's what the Torah, the Torah gives us many rules because the Torah wants to teach us self-control. It wants to teach us how to harness our lives and our abilities and not just spend our time wasting, you know, the, and in America today, I, th- I believe that we could fairly say that this has happened to us as well. I'm sure when the immigrants came to Ellis Island, it wasn't always like this. We weren't always Americanized, you know. We we might have had the you know you know the the we were Russianized, whatever whatever we were. But we came here, and we today gradually have become Americanized, so, and that's a problem. So at this point in Egypt, it could have looked a lot like the Jewish nation looks now in America, where yeah. prosperous and. They were, in fact, at the lowest possible, the 52nd level, what is it? 49th level. 49th level, level right? They were at the lowest possible level in Mitzrayim. Yes, yes. Uh, what that means, I don't know what that really means. Well, there's 50 level we, where, purity that you're yeah. talking about. Right, this we, is, this is more now? of a Kabbalistic idea. I don't know. Just find me where it says this in the Talmud. <laughs> I don't like talking about this. I, with, I, I, listen, every Jewish school kid knows that there's 50 levels of purity and impurity. Whatever. I'm more into the, you know, show me the sources. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I, I think it's hard for us because no one wants to be told that you have a mentality that you're not even aware of that is detrimental to your uh, growth and development as a Jew. No one wants to be told that, of course. Right, but regardless of the levels and so on, uh-huh. the, in Mitzrayim, people were very non-Jew in the of course, sense. Of course, of course, of so course. Do you think this is worse now than in Mitzrayim? I, I think it's probably better now than it was in Mitzrayim. No. Mm-hmm. But, if, but if Jews in, in Egypt at the time were so assimilated, then why were they seen they as weren't a as, They weren't as... Okay. Just like, just like in Germany. Uh, were they assimilated? It's not clear that they were assimilated. Um, it's if you actually read, let's read, let's let let's read verse ten. Come. Um, I, I here, only have one. Here, here, sorry. Here, here, no, no, I got it. Oh, Come, okay. let us outsmart it. Come it as the nation. Uh, lest it become numerous, and it may be that if a war will occur, it too may join our enemies and wage war against us and go up from the land. If I told you that sentence, you would send me back to uh, grammar school. Like, just think about that. We're going to outsmart the Jews because it may become too numerous and maybe there will be a war and then maybe they'll join our enemies and then maybe they'll leave. It doesn't seem to be a very logical argument. 
And I, I think that that's... I'm making up a, new, a reason. I think it's more of an excuse. But this is, this is they'll, become nu- they'll become numerous. There'll be a war, some unknown war. They'll join the enemies and then they'll leave. So how is that detrimental? They leave. This is, this is a, I mean, this is exactly what happened in Germany, right? 1%, as you said, they were not threat to anyone. They were still... The, this is clearly not a rational argument. Clearly. Um, it seems that this there's some un, uh, irrational um, argument argumentation going on over here, and I I think that that's that's very that's that that's very instructive. Um, whether or not they were as assimilated as they are in America today, uh, the the midrash tells us very interestingly that it says that they didn't change their names; so they maintained Jewish names, um, Jewish clothing, and uh, names. No names, clothing, and yeah, and language and language. It seems that they maintained like a Jewish identity, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I always say when I speak about like naming your baby, naming you, making sure you give a kid a Jewish name, because it seems like the midrash says that in the merit of them maintaining the Jewish identity, they still had a salvation. It seems like the, there's a, there's this last stop on the train of uh, the runaway train towards total assimilation, the last thing that a Jew has to maintain, or else they're totally gone, is, is their Jewish identity. Re- irrespective of, of observance or learning or scholarship or anything like that, any of the, kind of the higher levels of, of, of what it means to be Jewish, to identify, to be proud to be Jewish, that's what saved these people. Yeah. They still have Jewish names, they still have Jewish uh, language, and they still had, had a Jewish look to them. You know, that was the reason why they still had that at a bare minimum. Yeah, babes. Yeah. <laughs> um, that was right. Why they why they were redeemed? That's why we were redeemed exactly. What we were saying before, after I lost my train of thought, as usual. Um, yeah. So it doesn't seem like it's a, like it's 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 a rational but I think approach. It is, it's, it's rational. It's it's not fact based, yeah. but it's still rational. The, the the I mean the the rational is. They are growing. They have high rates of, uh, of fertility. Birth, right, fertility. They will become numerous. They and could go, since they maintain their distinction. They could. It's grow. like what we hear. It's very rational, but it's it's not fact based. I mean, there are assumptions that are wrong, and you know these things. But it, yeah, but it, it it seems like it is going to prey prey with an e on on people's fears rather than yes. a fact. Mm-hmm. So it's the kind of thing where if you give a scapegoat. Um, or if you want to make up a, a story about a people or an individual, people will believe it if they if if it just corroborates what they previously believe believed. You know, if you happen to be someone who disliked Jews already, comes along someone who says, "Hey, they're the cause of of your terrible economic situation." If you already have now, you have an excuse they're to hang your hat on. Wars, wars, right? Yeah. Now you have an excuse to hang your hat on like now it's a rationalization or it's a it's you know it's it's a way to rationalize what what you previously believed but didn't have anything uh, any any support uh, to justify it. Okay, so so there's that. So and I I think for us we perhaps should maybe critically examine our attitudes. The Torah, remember, the Torah is not telling us stories for not for nothing. It's telling us the detail of. How the Egyptian persecution and oppression began, because it's it, there's lessons for us as well. Even though we're, we're living many thousands of years afterwards, for us today living in America, 
it's very likely, very possible that we're under the influence of American culture in a similar way that the Jewish people were transfixed or, 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 or were uh, uh, bedeviled by uh, Egyptian, Egyptian culture as well. And that affected them, again, and they might not even, might not even know it. You know? Uh, we look at, at I think, I think um, the uh, Sunday being an off day. So we have two off days in the weekend. We have Saturday and, and Sunday. So how is it characterized? Well, you wake up late. You put on your bathrobe. If you don't have kids. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you go get the paper. Right. You put on the cartoons. You get some coffee. Like, I feel like Sunday in America has impacted what Shabbat should look like for us as Jews. You know? It's an off day. It's an off day. You know? When in reality, Shabbat is not a day, it, it's a day of, of rest, yes, but not a day of just, uh, of, of, of total removal from humanity, from society, of vegging, you know? I'm exhausted at the end of a Sunday. Yard <laughs> yeah. work, you house yeah. work. That's you what you have to do everything, right? You look forward to Monday. Yeah. <laughs> Go back. Not from vacation, but yeah, just, we just had just We just had winter break. Yeah. It's it's exhausting, you know, to be with the kids and yes. you know, an application for the parents. But yeah, Sunday's Yom Rishon, right? Yeah, it's the first day of the week. That's right. That's where you have to start work. Okay, so let, let, let's let's try to move on. I want to I want to get to Moses a little bit. How much time do we have here? We have uh, huh? Oh my, okay. I don't know how long. Well, need to get, need to get, <laughs> we, can, we can take it out until the morning. <laughs> let's take it outside. Let's take it outside. So. <laughs> So we see um, verses 11, moving on, we see exactly the detail of, of the enslavement. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pharaoh uh, undergoes a plan or, or, or endorses a plan of infanticide, killing babies. Why? Because he's worried that the babies are come to redeem the people. It seems to be spiraling out of control to madness and megalomania. And then chapter 2 starts off with Two very bizarre statements. A man went from the house of Levi and took a daughter of Levi. We have a marriage. A marriage of who? A man. To who? A daughter. Mazalto. What's the problem? There's something missing in the, in, in the verse. What's missing? Who are, these who are these people? The Torah almost never does that. Why is the Torah giving this anonymous introduction to Moses? Verse number two. The woman conceived, we don't know her name, and she gave birth to a son. Also, we don't know the name yet. Well, we'll know, we'll know his name <laughs> yes. a, little, a, a, a little further. What do, we, what do we see? The Torah is telling us the birth of Moses. We mentioned this last time. I just wanted to come back to it. Redemption happens from very unlikely sources. We talked about Judah and Tamar and David and Bathsheba. And I found also another reason that will make you even more happy. Because um, I, I found in this book uh, a reason that he says something very interesting. He says that we we think of, of of big things that happen. Like if you want to change the world, what do you do? You write an article in op-ed. You call a press conference. You get you start endorsing it on the radio. Like that's how we think. We think there's big lights, there's spotlights. This is the idea that changes the world. In Judaism, the things that change the world are the things that happen very very quietly, very modestly. No one's watching. You know, the Midrash says that the, the first tablets, we know that the Jews had two tablets, 
Right. The iPad and the iPad 2. <laughs> Two tablets. The first tablets were given to the Jewish people with great fanfare. The, the most momentous probably uh, event in the history of mankind. Thunders and, Thunders and lightning and prophecy and whatnot. And then there's uh, the tablets. Right? What happened to those? Those were destroyed. The second tablets are the ones that had endurance. Those were the ones that they were, they were just just Moses went up quietly, no fanfare, there was no noise, there was no uh, there's there's either no billboards, no nothing. Right? That's how these things happen in Judaism. You know, what's so funny? Yeah, it's true. It's like Cyprus. It's like Cyprus. Yeah, <laughs> under the radar. Under the radar, <laughs> right? In the exactly. So uh, building the temple. Yes. <laughs> so. Perhaps the reason why the birth of Moses is shrouded with this anonymity, because the Torah wants to tell us, it's the, the, no one knew what they want. It's like, oh, this is the leader, and he wasn't crowned as a leader. It doesn't happen like that. There's no cookie cutter, you know, from day one. Moses, his life story is very bizarre. You know, he, he's Jewish, but he grows up in the house of Pharaoh. Eventually, he gets exiled. He disappears from the map for, for 60 years. From the age of 20 to the age of 80, we don't know anything that the Torah doesn't tell us anything about him. The Midrash gives us lots of stories. He became a king in the land of the, of the black people. So it says, pretty hmm. interesting. It seems as he went to Africa and became a king that was a leader toward the world. We don't know what happened to never him. I never read that one. <laughs> cool, yeah. Let's read about it. Google it. Um, there's this group called the B'nai Moshe. The, the the group of Africans that they they claim to have the, the the descendants of of those whether it's true I to me I doubt uh, I have great skepticism uh, uh, to the accuracy of their claim but the midrash does talk about Moses so he left he escaped he marries some Midianite girl he has a stutter he comes back he doesn't seem like he's a great charismatic leader he he rejects the role it's like he doesn't want to be it. It, this doesn't look like the cookie cutter um, leader, but no, no, no leader has uh, has 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 filled his shoes. Uh, no one. Torah is telling us his story. You know, a man married a woman. It's all no will. Yeah, of course not. Okay, so what happens? Uh, she sees that he's good, so he's born, and she sees that he's good. Look at verse uh, number two. The woman conceived gave birth to the son. She saw that he was good and she hid him for three months. So what did she see that was good? So there's a very interesting Rashi that says that when Moses was born, Moshe was born, the entire house filled with light. So much so that my, I have a brother-in-law whose name is Moshe and my in-laws, my in-laws decided that they want to give him a secular name. You know, because hey, you give someone a name as just a Jewish name. Well, what if they want to go into business? They should have another name. So um, they decided. Like uh, they decided that while well, Moshe was born, the Moshe was born, the whole house filled with light. So it's like a ray of light. They called him Moshe Ray. I'm not kidding. That's what, he's like he like he's like embarrassed to show anyone his license, driver's license. That's his name, Moshe Ray. This is like the statue of uh, Michelangelo, right? What the, the, the one that is the Moses with the with, with the, two with the horns, yeah. Horns. yeah. Well, the well, race of light, kind yeah, of. Yeah, well, that's right? the, the, yeah, the that's face. later on at the yes. end of, of, of yeah, the but the word Quran and Karan is spelled the same way in Hebrew. Yeah. 
So that's one interesting thing we find about this about this kid. So he he's born with some sort of light. Um, he, what else do we know about him? He is so the, so he is uh, put opinion, in. Another opinion I see here is that I don't know if it's Rashi that uh, he she saw he was good because he was born circumcised. Yes, that's another opinion. That's that that that, that that's uh, that's another uh, another opinion. Um, they put him in a box. Why? Because there's a rule, a decree that says all babies, whether they're Jewish or even Egyptian, have to be thrown in. All male babies have to be thrown into the water. Infanticide. Right? That's what it says. So uh, why did Pharaoh include the Egyptian babies um, in this as well? Because Pharaoh didn't know if, if the Redeemer is going to come from the Jews or the Egyptians. He says, you know what, let's kill everyone. Once again, madness. <laughs> They just put the baby in there. Who picks the baby up in the, from the box? Pharaoh's daughter. And what does she see in there? What does it say here? She opens it and she sees, and she sees him. Rashi says that she sees him is a reference to the Shekhinah. She saw something was special. She had a certain spiritual sensitivity to understand that there was something special about this baby. What else? She's a brand new baby. What are you going to do? You got to bring him to have to have him fed. What do you do? So you go to the store and buy formula. Is that what you do? Mm-hmm. Really? No, you end up being a midwife. You, are, you end up being. You have to have a midwife. Yeah. Otherwise, people die. So she takes him and she brings him to the midwife and the child refused to, refused to eat. Not going to eat. Midwife to midwife refuses to eat. Why? Once again, the midrash fills us in. Because Moses, the baby, is saying, I'm going to talk to God, I'm going to eat from these non-Jewish women? It seems clear. It seems clear that Moses was destined for greatness even as a baby. Yes, the story starts off with anonymity, of course, but there is this perspective that this kid is going to be something special. And how, what exactly means that he refused to suckle and said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eat only from a Jew? He ended up eating with his own mother. I don't know. But clearly, Moses had capabilities. Moses had an opportunity to be this great leader that he ended up fulfilling, something that we probably can't accomplish. Now, Maimonides... Things that come from a non-kosher animal are non-kosher. That's right. So milk that comes from a human. Well, first of all, who says a human is not kosher? That's an assumption. Right? Is it? Torah says says that... Torah says that... that, uh, Can we eat humans? I don't know. You tell me. (laughs) You're the one... I would say no, but... (laughs) You need honey. I mean, if we are classified as animals, we have to have the clef. Well, we're not animals, that's for sure. Right. Well, most of us. (laughs) <laughs> um, uh, but there's a big there's debate the, about this the, right the, the bee is the example right with the honey and so on but even if it's non-culture well yeah but the Torah doesn't explicitly say one way or the other as to human flesh if that's kosher or not so there's a big big debate about it obviously it's not uh, thankfully it's not uh, it's not it, 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 it'll never be pro- no one says it's totally permitted because even if even if even if someone you don't execute someone, God forbid, or you don't kill someone, but there is a prohibition against benefiting from a dead body. Mm. 
So it's clearly not permitted. The question is, is it prohibited because of that reason or because it's essentially prohibited, it's not kosher? Is it prohibited because of kosher reasons or other reasons? But no one's endorsing that kind of behavior. <laughs> yeah. Um, Maimonides, interestingly, Maimonides writes, he says, every person in the world, Jew, non-Jew, man, woman, everyone can be as great as Moses. Every one of us on the table can be as great as Moses. Maimonides said that? Maimonides writes that. But the 13th principle, he says, there's no... Nobody could be like Moses. Yeah. How could we all be like Moses on one hand and none of us be like Moses on the other hand? Right? The Torah itself says no one will be as great as Moses. Good question, guys, huh? What do you guys think? We'll get some more water. <laughs> 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 Maybe Asymptotically, you get there, right? Because like, Moses' objective was to lead the people out of Israel. Well, I mean, it could and our be. Our objective is, sorry, out of Egypt into Israel. And ours is to do something else. Everyone I mean, could be as great as Moses. Well, says. it could be the if you measure an absolute or relative. If you measure yourself with your potential, you could fulfill your potential as much as Moses did. Exactly. His potential. A thousand percent, Diego, you hit the nail on the head. None of us are going to be afforded the same opportunities as Moses. None of us are born with the same spiritual sensitivities, the same elevated soul as Moses. We don't have the opportunity to be as great as Moses. However, we all have tremendous, tremendous capabilities to become perfect people and to maximize our own potential. That we can do. Moses' potential greatly outseated our potential. Moses maximized his opportunities we could also maximize our opportunities as well. And while the Almighty is not going to demand us to be like Moses, He's going to demand us to do what Moses did, which is to maximize His potential. His potential, and the same thing is going to be demanded of us. So we look at Moses. Moses, you know, had an opportunity. You know, he, he had gifts. He had capabilities to change the world like he did, to be the conduit that's going to deliver the Torah to the Jewish people, he maximized that opportunity. Us on our own little small, um, you know, smaller scale, you know, we have opportunities to also change not necessarily the world, maybe that as well, but to change ourselves, change our families, change our communities, to be positive influence, you know, to constantly be growing in our relationship with the Almighty, in our dedication to uh, to Judaism. We all have that same opportunity, and that's demanded of us as well. You know, we can say, "Oh, I'm not going to be like Moses. I'm not going to be like, hey, come on, I got to live in the modern world." It's you know, what, what can we really do? Right? Whatever we can do, we have to do. But that has to be your attitude. And Maimonides says he pick, he doesn't pick Abraham or uh, uh, or uh, uh, I don't know uh, Rabbi Akiva or Ezra. He picks Moses. And he says, Moses, we can be like Moses. Because when God judges us, it's also judged on a relative scale. We're judged individually. Every person is judged individually. And individually, we have something that the Almighty is going to demand of us and expect us. That's going to be our responsibility and our mission. And hopefully we'll be able to, 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 like Moses, uh, be successful in accomplishing what we need to accomplish.
let's look at the three episodes that the Torah is going to tell us about Moses. Verse, verse 11, let's start with verse 11. It happened in those days that Moses grew up and he went out to his brethren and observed their burdens and he saw an Egyptian man striking a Hebrew man of his brethren. He turned this way and that way and saw that there was no man and he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Yeah, what is that? This what way that and that mean? way. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I had a... <laughs> right. I but had then, a... you know, it's not so left-right. It's this way and that way. What is this way and what is... This way, that way. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's so what it seems, simple, right? The simple understanding is... The simple yeah. basic understanding is that, yeah, he looked, made sure no was watching and killed the guy. That's not the whole story. I know, I think that that's probably what uh, the simple understanding, which we like to, you know, with simple understanding is usually the closest to being the accurate understanding. I had a friend of mine in yeshiva who told me a very nice uh, interpretation of, of this verse. He you know, said, listen, Moses, Moses grew up in Pharaoh's home. You know, he had um, dual allegiances. Mm-hmm. On one hand, he was a member of the... Uh, of mm-hmm. you know, of, he was Jewish. Obviously, so he, he knew he that. He looked at his tool. He yeah. looked at this way and looked at it and saw that there was no man. Mm-hmm. He looked at his Jewish side. He looked at his Egyptian. He saw this is not a man. You gotta choose your allegiances. You have to have. Did, you have to have an identity, a singular identity. You know. Did, Go ahead. Besides um, uh, the prince, I guess the princess and her maid servants. Did the actual Pharaoh know? Not so clear. It's not clear if he knew or not. Um, I. Uh, it seems like he might have known. I, I don't know for sure. I don't know if that answer is, is, has been conclusively um, clarified. Yeah. Actually, that, that's that's this is where probably he realized that he was the one. When he saw. He saw that. I don't think so. You don't think so? No. I because so. I mean, in that interpretation, I'm, I'm elaborating on, on your friend's thing. That's saying. How would he know he's Jewish yet? Well, he was raised by his mother. Yeah, he was raised by his mother. Yeah, exactly. but would his mother tell him? Why not? Yeah. Well, so he was fully raised by his mother. He was raised, you know, until he was old enough to be sent away. But he, I'm saying, I it's, it's clear, and he went and he saw his bro- brethren. Means he, he clearly empathized. <laughs> what was that? I said, and you can certainly tell if your mom is Jewish. Yeah. <laughs> So he, he realized. So how you doing? <laughs> no, but like. You know the joke about the two ties? What's the two what ties? What do you tell him? The, the, the mom gives the, the, the son, the kid, yeah. 40 year old, two ties. So the first time he sees his mom, he's wearing one of them. And the mom asks, Why? You didn't like the other one? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's great. No, but what I was saying about this is he looked one side, which is his Egyptian thing, the other side, the Jewish thing. Yeah. And he saw that there was no man there. He was the only one in the middle that was able to. Or that he saw that this is not this is not a man. When someone has conflict, internal conflict, some of the days you're like this, some of the days you're like that. You know, some of the days you love your wife, some of the days you don't love your wife. That's that's not a way to live. That's not a man. He had to right. choose who he was going to be. Exactly. Are you Jewish? Wait. Or so, you're not Jewish. So he knew. Well, he knew he was Jewish for sure. Okay. Yeah, of course. But he hadn't yet like internalized it. He hadn't. He hadn't made this decision. He, you know, we kind of have a tendency to leave our options open. 
you know, we want to, we want to, you know, oh, no, we don't burn any bridges, you know. If he knew, it would be like, it would seem like it would be difficult to hide if you're in, like, the presence of someone who shouldn't know, or. But there are opinions that say that in order for him to be able to redeem the people, to lead the people, he has to be on both sides, right? He has to be part of the people, but at the same time, he has to know the Egyptian way in order for him to... Yeah, yeah, it does does seem like that, you know? I don't think it's a coincidence that he was uniquely uh, positioned to... Um, be you know to be an interface between the Jews and the, and the Egyptians. He went to Pharaoh. He walks in. He obviously knew his way around there. Yeah. You know he wasn't just a regular dude. So I, I believe that contributed as well. So like in this in this situation, he could have used his Egyptian political clout clout to, yeah, to send that guy to so send he did. So, um, so 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 let's 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 let's, let's examine the verse because I want to. It's gonna. I want to quote something that's gonna uh, play into what to what to what you're saying here. Uh, let's read it again here. It happened in those days, Moses grew up. So Moses grew up means he became an adult. Um, according to the Midrash, he became, he became 20, he's 20. 20. And he went out to his brethren and observed their burdens. He saw something. And he saw an Egyptian man striking a Hebrew man of his brethren. If you look at the Hebrew ver- uh, version of it, it says the word, and he saw twice. And he saw Bisivlosam. Vayar ish mitzri. It says he saw the, the word and the words and he saw. It says that twice. So the Midrash asks, what did he see? It means it's not just that he observed, he saw something specific. Let me read I, read, I took a picture of it today so I can share it with you guys. To remember to quote it. So the Midrash asks, what did Moses see? Oops, sorry. Here we go. What did Moses see? Rabbi Elazar, the son of Rabbi Yosei Aglili, says, he saw the load, a big load, on a small person. A slave was small, the little slave was schlepping a huge load. The load, a small load on a big person. The load for a man, the workload for a man on a woman. The workload for a woman on a man. The workload for an old person on a young person, and the workload for a young person on an old person. And Moses abandoned his stature. Moses was a prince in Egypt, so he, you know, princes don't deal with the petty slaves. But yet he went and he was uh, trying to help them, you know. And he would make believe that he's trying to help Pharaoh. And he would tell Pharaoh, "Hey, it's not efficient. You know, you have maximum efficiency. You should give people a job that they're capable of doing." Says the Almighty, continues the matrix, listen to this critical line. Says the Almighty, you abandon your dealings. What, I'm pouring oh, the Midrash. You abandon your dealings and you went to see the suffering of Israel and you treated them like brothers. I, this is the Almighty speaking, I will leave the uh, the upper realms of, 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 of the spiritual world and I'll speak to you. The Torah tells us this one episode. Remember, we know very little about Moses. It just doesn't tell us much about Moses. Similarly, Abraham. We meet Abraham at the age of 75. We don't know what happened to him before that. It doesn't say it in the Torah. Well, we do know because the Midrash full of sin. But we don't know the Torah. But the first story it's telling us about Moses is this tremendous empathy that he had with his brethren. He saw them suffering. He saw them suffering and he saw their pain. 
But not only that, he saw specifics. He saw the load of a big person and a small person. A small person and a big person, man and woman. He saw all the details. He cared. When you care, right, to care and to empathize with someone else, it means to actually feel what they're going through. It's not just, you know, most of us, we're very much self-centered. So it's very hard for us to notice that someone else is is uh, is is not doing well, is having a bad day. I, I have a remarkable uh, thing that happened to me over the past uh, week ago. I was in Canada for, for winter break, and um, my father-in-law was really wasn't feeling well. Father-in-law, I was staying with my in-laws in, in Toronto. So father was he was he had a flu. He wasn't feeling well, and he he he's a he's a trooper. My father-in-law, so he decides he's going to drone a mincha to, to to pray at the shul. Mincha, even though he's not feeling well, he barely could watch, you know. And so it's fairly large shul. It's not huge, but it's, it's big. There's probably 100 people in the room. Or maybe 50 people in the room. It's not like it's just five people, you know. And and they have a young, energetic rabbi there. And the rabbi called him up after davening. He says, I, I saw that you, you weren't feeling well. Is everything all right? You weren't, you weren't, you know what? Now he sits at the, all the way at the back of the shul, like he he you know, and I was so impressed with this rabbi that he's it's prayer, so you're busy. There's fifty to eighty people in the room, and you notice that you, someone you speak to, you notice that someone's not feeling well. Like that is a tremendous example of of, of living for someone else, of not just thinking about what you are, what you're to see someone and to notice. To notice the details, to notice that someone's not feeling well, but to notice the specifics of, of, of why is this slave having a hard time? Oh, he's a big guy and he's carrying a small load. And that, that's a schlep. To have to carry a toothpick you know, across the room is, is, is frustrating. And this is a man who's doing laundry. I don't know how to get that discussion. But a man's doing, I don't know, uh, let's avoid that. <laughs> a, a, a man is doing something that's intended for women. Whatever, whatever you decide is intended for women, you fill in the blank, you know? Uh, and a woman doing a man's job, like she's schlepping heavy stuff. That way you could, that, that could go that over that <laughs> That won't fly. Uh, he notices the specifics. The Torah is telling us this is Moses. Moses the leader. What do we know about Moses? What, what's special about him? He peers and notices every little bit of everyone, even the people, the lower people, you know. And says the Almighty, this is the reason why I chose Moses. This is why Moses had, had the unprecedented prophecy. This is why Moses is greater than anyone else. This is this is this specifically, this ability to uh, to It's okay, continue. It's in his beard. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> He's this, mocking me. Yeah. <laughs> this ability to get out of your own shoes, to see the world in someone else's view to, to think about what someone else is going through you know how many times are we going through stuff in our lives and, and no one notices you know and say oh it's such a hard day at work to try to get some empathy you know something <laughs> like that you know the greater you are in judaism the more you're able to or, or the more that that uh, you're going to empathize right uh, there's a story about the chafetz chaim chafetz chaim the chafetz chaim the great uh, uh, rabbi is uh, israel the word for that is empathize empathize that's right empathy he when, in somebody else's shoes. That's right. That's right. To feel what someone else is going through. Um, they didn't have shoes, right? In this shrine. They were using the sandals. <laughs> to put someone, someone sandals. in someone's yeah. clock. <laughs> um, Chavaz Chaim was a great rabbi. Uh, died in 1933. So he, 
he found out about he was in his nineties. He found out that there were people when? that there were Jews. Is that right? Mm-hmm. He's in his nineties. You're in your nineties. Ninety uh, and three months. Wow. <laughs> I've I've been three months into my nineties. Fantastic. Just stay strong. Make it to a hundred and ten. Hundred and twenty. Hundred and twenty. Hundred and ten is enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I make it to hundred and ten, and then we'll talk. Okay, we reconvene in twenty years. For hundred twenty. Yeah, or is that well? I never heard the hundred and ten. Okay, well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a whatever. I'm a minimalist. <laughs> <laughs> a lower bound. Yeah, hundred and ten. You want to take a hundred and ten? I would. Yeah. Okay, I'll take well, it. I'm older. That could be life extension. Yeah, but uh, 110. 500 years. But 120 is because of Moshe, right? Moshe. Moses left 120. My, my grandmother lived to be 100. Oh, wow. And her mother, my mother, lived to be 103. Hmm. And so, because I have so much to do, I. Yeah, I thought, I, thought, I, thought you, I thought you were 69. Seriously. Uh, I used to be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For a short while. <laughs> About a year? <laughs> Give or take. Give or take, yeah. So the Chafetz Chaim was in his 90s and he refused to sit on a, on a chair. Yeah? Did you give anonymously? Did I, did I, did I give anonymously? And that was part of the joke, remember? Yeah. <laughs> so um, he refused to sit in a chair because he... He knew that there were, he heard stories about Jews in the other end of the world that were going through a hard time. You know, the greater you are, the more you're going to empathize. And the Torah tells us the first thing we know about Moses: first, his great capacity uh, for for empathy. Now, additionally, the next thing we learn about Moses is that Moses had an intolerance for evil. You know, he sees something wrong; he cannot. Take it quietly sitting down. He has a disdain for evil. First thing we hear about Moses, these two things, empathy on one hand for the weak and disdain for the evil. Let's look at the next episode. 13, verse 13. He goes out the next day, and behold, two Jews were fighting. And he said to the wicked one, why do you strike your fellow? He replied, he says, who are you? Why are you in charge? Are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? Moses was frightened, and he says, oh, now everyone knows. Pharaoh heard about what happened, wants to kill Moses, Moses flees. And he sits by the wall. That's episode number two. What do we see? We see two people fighting. If I see two people fighting, I, had, I, I go the other way. Right? If you see a fist fight breaking out, you don't want to get anywhere close to where the <laughs> blows can land. Huh? Place, Place your, your bets. bets. Place your bets, yeah. Well. Get some popcorn. Yeah. Um, and, and and that's you know and that's Mo- what does Moses do? Like you see a bit two bit tough guys slugging at each other. He says, "Hey, wicked one, why are you hitting your fellow? What's he getting involved? Like what? what, what the Torah telling us a story. Like why is the Torah telling us a story? I, I think perhaps it's along the same lines. He sees someone getting pummeled, and he's when you see someone suffering." If you're, if you empathize, if you have this quality, you can't just abandon them. You can't just say I'm out. Additionally, he sees a uh, 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 a uh, 
uh, a, uh, a, a uh, an antagonist, or an antagonist. So he sees the bad guy, and he says to him, why are you so bad? Like, he blurts it out, so to speak. He's like, wicked one, why are you hitting your friend? He had such an intolerance, such an incapability to just say, he, he just had to say, why, why are you doing this? Like, to him, it was so anathema. To have, to hit someone else, to physically hit someone else, how do you do that? He says, you know, once again, that's, that, that, that's the, the second time we see that, that these two themes are, are true as well. And episode number three is he's in Midian and he sees, he's waiting by the well. The minister of Midian had seven daughters. They came to drew, to drew, to, and drew water and filled their, you know, f- you know to f- f- feed the father's sheep. Shepherds come and start up with him. Once again, he sees someone who's being oppressed and he sees someone who's oppressing. Moses gets up and saves them and water their sheep. Three stories as an introduction to, uh, to Moses. And three of them share the same, the same thing. I think what the Torah is telling us, perhaps, these are the hallmarks of great leaders. Great leaders are people that are incapable of dealing with something that's bad. And I think it's not just, we think of it in a spiritual sense. I think you talk about the great business leaders. What is the hallmark of a great business leader? That they do not settle. If something is wrong, if something is not ideal, if something's not perfect, you gotta innovate. You know? When Google came around, you know, they and they said we're gonna have a better search engine. I was like, what do you mean? The search engines today are eighty percent good. Like, why do we need a better one? Webcrawler. Yeah. It, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Alta Vista. Like, why wow. do you need something You're better? Enough, yes. <laughs> Ask Jeeves, right? Even Yahoo, right? But no. They said we want it to be perfect, and every great business leader you're going to say, you, you, you're going to bring to had the same thing that there was something extant or something existing, and they came and they wanted to make it better, and they just had a refusal. They they didn't take it quietly. They didn't take it quietly where something is not perfect or uh, far from perfect. Moses, Moses sees something wrong, he reacts. It bothers him. It irritates him when he sees evil. On one hand, on the other hand, Moses has a great capacity to empathize with the specifics with the specifics of 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 the pain and suffering of of, of the people that he encounters he is so uh, unselfish so to speak he sees the world from other people's shoes he he's able to imagine what life is like for other people that is another the, the other hallmark and th- that, that's the story coming from the palace too where you have seemed to be more so you would more yeah, likely be more self-centered but there is also an alternative uh, interpretation of those two stories. Th- those two hallmarks of leadership. Yeah. The first one is that he protects his people from external threats, which is the Egyptian feeling. And the other one is internal. it helps the internal <laughs> to be internal. united, the, the, the Jewish people to be united. So those are the two. And what about the, the story of, uh, of the daughters of. Uh, That's it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, yeah, that's true. But as the individual, as the individual, I, I um, have a great story from my grandfather. It's one of the famous stories. He heard it. I apologize. Uh, he says that there was this rabbi in in, um, in Europe uh, who someone came to him and asked him the day before the you know the busiest day of the year for for rabbis has traditionally been the day before Pesach. Passover. <clears throat> because Passover is a day where there's so many different laws and so many, you got to have the matzah, and there's no chametz, and there's all the food, and it's a very busy day for rabbis. 
So the rabbi gets knocked on the door on Erev Pesach, the day before Pesach. And and the and the rabbi tells and and the guy rides down to the door. When he sees, when he opens the door, he sees one of his constituents there, and he says, "Guys, rabbi, I have a question." Well, what's your question? I want to know. If, you know that uh, during the seder night we have the four cups of wine. What's the law with uh, using instead of four cups of wine? Can I use four cups of milk? The rabbi thinks about it. He goes to his books and he says to him, "No." But here's some money. Give him some money. Go get yourself some. Get yourself. The rabbi's wife is there. She's like, she sees how she sees what happened. She sees what the guy asked. She sees what they answered, and she sees how much money he gave him. Says, wait a minute, <coughs> rabbi, tell me, why did he give him so much money? He needs a bottle of wine. So give him some money. You gave him a lot more money than a bottle of wine. So the rabbi told her, says, I know that this guy would never have milk and meat in the same meal. So from the fact that he's asking me that he wants to have four cups of milk for the meal, he doesn't have meat, he have meat for the meal either. I, I could deduce that. Therefore, I gave him enough money for not only for wine, but also for the meal. So my grandfather used to say the story as, this is a model of someone who doesn't just see the surface of the people that they encounter, but they able to dig much deeper. And they, they think about life from this person's perspective. When you encounter someone, you know, who has an issue, has a problem. What are you going to do? Are you going to say, okay, how do I get out of this with the cheapest amount of money? Or or like, you know, <laughs> you have to delve in. Or the great people, they delve into other people's lives and try to figure out where are they coming from? What are they really going through? To truly empathize is the hallmark of, of, of great Jewish leaders. Um, I, I think that, you know, we talk about Moshe so much, Moses, Moses is going to be in every page now the rest of the book. He's going to fight for the Jews again and again. He's going to give vision for the Jews. He's going to be the prophet. He's going to, every mitzvah that we have is called Torah Moshe. It's the Torah of Moshe. I'm sorry, you need another drink. I don't know why I'm so thirsty. We go to Chaim? Water. Oh, I thought you were. So what? Too much Cyprus. Give me a drink here. So one question, because I thought... Aaron was the people's guy. Right? He was the empathizer kind of thing, right? Did Moshe change with time? Or but, okay. Cynical. <laughs> well, because... Moshe, Moshe had to, as a leader, you have to be tough. Yeah. You have on one hand this great empathy, but also you have on the other hand this disdain for evil. Mo- if you're going to be an, a, 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 an effectual leader, you're going to have to stand up to people. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to take stands on issues. You're going to have to do things that are unpopular. Yeah, no, I understand. That. Moses was, was less popular. Was less popular yeah. than Aaron, but Moses, um, uh, um, he superseded him as leader for sure. Um, so, 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 I'm saying, your well, question is he like was this. the empath here, like, like yeah. he empathizes and so on and so forth. But I mean, then when the story develops, Aaron is now the the true people well, guy. When he was when he was in was Midian? Yeah. Um, where this kind of leads him, he's off to a kind of a great start. He rescues the beautiful princess and all this kind of stuff, right? But then when we see him again, he's taking care of the sheep. It's like it's like almost something happened in between and maybe he gave up. Maybe maybe he's a different person at that point. I don't know. 
Well, we're going to meet in the end of the parsha. I don't want to take you guys too much over everyone's bedtime. Um, but in the end of the parsha, we're going to we're going to see we're going to see the third uh, the third uh, or the, probably and probably the most fundamental characteristic of Moshe, and that is humility. And that is that he doesn't take any credit for himself, selfless, um, not going to be demanding of any honor. Uh, seemingly, he's trying to run away from it. And the Torah itself uh, testifies that Moses is the most humble man that ever lived. Um, so yes, that's 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 the the third element of uh, of 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 I think the you know the overarching themes that the Torah tells us uh, about him. And for sure, Aaron is Aaron is called Ovis Abrius from the Torah. He loved everyone, and he would he was a peacemaker. Um, uh, Aaron compromised to a fault. Uh huh. Compromised to a fault. Yeah, even and yeah, and you if you look at the story of what happened at the with the golden calf, it seems like he was uh, he was not being that you know that that tough that that tough love that uh, that Moses was, and uh, you know then that was a detriment. But but still, the Torah is telling us that Moses had a tremendous capacity for empathy, uh, with the disdain for evil, and all, and and ultimately also with this incredible incredible humility, and that's important for us to know. And the Torah tells us these stories because we're going to know a lot about Moses, but also as models for us. You know, if you want to say, "Hey, I want to become a better person," like take on these three things. Like you can say, "Hey, when I see something evil." I, it bothers me, it irritates me, it hurts me, it pains me. Like to not brush it off, to have things make an impact on me. Like that's that, that's a way to start, you know, to try to model ourselves after a little bit in a small way, a little bit like Moses, to be to be leaders in our own right, you know, to empathize with other people. You see someone, like try to think when you meet someone, you encounter someone, what are they going through? Ask yourself the question: How can I help this person? It's just random person in the street. Or your coworker, your colleague, your friend, your cousin, your wife, your anyone that you meet, how, what are they going through? How do I help them? How do I break a little bit out of my own self-centered little little cocoon and see what someone else is going through? Right? That's a very healthy exercise. And additionally, we have to know any time you grow any stage in Judaism, in any in any area, especially in character development, right away, almost immediately, you're going to be hit with a Tremendous urge to become haughty and arrogant. It's like, you know, uh, the the day you go on a diet, you almost automatically gonna start belittling the people that are spending too much time in the candy aisle in the grocery. It happens almost automatically. Uh, and yesterday you were with them, but today I made a decision. Ah, oh, now I gotta look down at everyone else. You know, that's a very natural reaction. You know. But in Judaism, we say that the greater someone is, the greater their, their responsibility for for humility. Most the greatest man, the greatest man to live, hence he had to be the most humble. He had to be, right? Or else there's something flawed with ascribing your successes and your accomplishments to your own power. And I, I think that those are those are are the lessons that we should try to draw from Moses. And the other thing that we spoke about also was the. Um, you know, this whole idea, this major theme about about anti-Semitism and suffering and exile, which is, we started over here, you know, for the first time, but it's something that we have to encounter many, many other times uh, throughout Jewish history. Okay. Sorry, I apologize for one over time. Did we? I don't know. 10 o'clock. 10 o'clock? That's what time it is.